When I was a young boy, I remember how hurt I would be. Some of you, some of you guys that have done things with me are going to get a kick out of this, I think. I remember how hurt I would be when another young friend would make a commitment to do something with me, like cut the neighbor's, cut neighbor's grass for money or uh, possibly go on a bicycle ride together or to... Uh, shovel each other's driveway, help each other out shoveling the driveway. We make a commitment, you know, in the morning we're going to do this, we're going to do that. I'd had all these plans made, of course, and haven't changed a whole lot. And then the friend would call up and say, well, I can't do it, or give some wimpy excuse at the last minute. And it just seemed to ruin my day. And then when my dad would come home from work and he'd see that I was sort of unhappy, things didn't quite work out like I thought they should for the day, and the friend had let me down and all that, and he would ask me what happened, and I'd explain it to him. And, and then he would quote one of his favorite sayings to me. And that is, first time, shame on them. Second time, shame on me. You've heard that, haven't you? Most of you. How many have heard that? Most of you have. Okay. In other words, if it happens again, it's my fault for asking the spineless wimp that's proven that he can't depend, be depended on to keep a commitment to do something. The moral of the story, is sort of, or the moral of the saying was clear, and that is, have nothing to do with people who don't keep their word and fulfill their commitments. They're bad people. In fact, after becoming a Christian, I sort of believed this principle and believed that it had governed sort of my relationship with God. Give your word to God and fail to keep it. Make a commitment to God and fail to fulfill it. And you might as well kiss your earthly life goodbye. I knew God would not take away his gift of eternal life that he'd given me and that I would go to heaven. That was never in doubt. But I also figured that God would have nothing to do with Christians who gave up and went home. Who failed to keep their word, who backed out of their commitments. Yes, they'd go to heaven, but they would be the ones that would be sitting on a pink cloud strumming a harp. Even after I entered the ministry, I can recall moments of discouragement when I would be tempted to throw in the towel and say, I quit. Then a scripture would come to my mind, like 2 Samuel 24, where David quit, depending upon God, and numbered the people to show that he had his own strength and didn't need to be depending on God. And he was full of pride. And we read after that that God gave him three choices. Seven years of famine, two, three months of being chased by his enemies, or three, three days of plague upon the land. So whenever I thought about quitting or forsaking my commitment to serve the Lord, I would hear the Lord saying, Okay, Mr. Wimp, do you want cancer, poverty and disgrace, or do you want an accident on your motorcycle with everybody standing around saying, We told you so? It's thoughts like these that can leave us paranoid and somewhat paralyzed as Christians. Have you ever felt like this? 
You've agreed to work for VBS for a week in the summer. A very good thing to do. Then some friends come along and say, we're going to go to the river that week and we'd love to have you join us. And for a moment you think, do you want to lose your job? Do you want to lose your good health? Or do you want to have a boating accident? Now, I'm overdoing it a bit, but I hope you get the point. And the question I want to ask myself is this, and, and us, is, is this really how God deals with our life? With his children who break their word and who fail to keep their commitment? Is this how the Lord Jesus Christ deals with those who possess his life, eternal life? Through believing in him as their personal savior? Now, if you're tempted to think this way, as I've been, then I would like for you to hear what God has to say today from his word. And I'd like to begin, we are going to end up in John 21 because we're going through the Gospel of John, but I'd like to begin sort of at the beginning here as far as his disciples were concerned. I'd like for you to look at Mark chapter 1. You can turn to that or you can look on your note sheet. I've tried to, I guess I didn't write it out on the note sheet. I just put a... Of scripture there, but it should be behind me. And this is what we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now, this is right at the beginning of his ministry. And we read, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. He would later name Simon Peter. And Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. Now, let me clarify something here. Jesus was not inviting these men to become Christians. According to John chapter 1, they were already Christians. In John chapter 1, you may remember that while they were in Jerusalem for a religious feast, they were following the ministry of John the Baptist, and on one particular occasion... They listened and watched as John the Baptist pointed to a man and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they followed after that man. And they asked to follow him. And he said, That's, that's good. Come ahead. Soon they were bringing... Andrew was bringing his brother Peter and others were... The other was, was, were bringing their friends and... They were following him, and their purpose of following him was to learn who he was. Was he indeed the Messiah? But that seemed to be what John the Baptist was saying. And they came to believe that he was the Messiah. They came to believe that he was the Savior, that he had come to take away their sin and to grant them the gift of eternal life. And they believed in him. It's very clear in that passage. For a few more days, they kept following him after that. But after watching Jesus turn water into wine and, and then confronting the corruption in the temple in John 2, and after seeing the people of Samaria eagerly responding to his word in John 4, the disciples, along with Jesus, finally got back to the Sea of Galilee. They'd started up in Jerusalem, worked their way down through Samaria to Galilee. Galilee's about 30 miles from Jerusalem. And this is where they lived. In the region of Galilee. They came back to their family and their friends. 
Now, as far as the disciples were concerned, it was time to get back to work. They had asked to follow Jesus. They had found out that He was indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They had believed in Him. They had eternal life. But now it's time to get back to work. Time to settle down and get serious about the business of making a living. Time to get out the fishing nets and get into their boats and provide for their families. Time to get back on the old schedule and the old way of doing things that they've become so accustomed to and enjoyed so much. And so that is what they did. And then one day, Jesus showed up walking along the seashore, close to where they were fishing. And we read again in Mark 1, And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now this was different from the first time. When they asked to follow him to find out more about who he was. Now Jesus was calling out to them and asking them to follow him. Jesus wanted them to become fishers of men. He wanted them to learn from him how to catch people and to bring them to the truth that he is the Messiah King the Savior who has come, and His name is Jesus of Nazareth. By enlisting these who already believed in Him as fishers of men, Jesus would be multiplying His efforts to reach a lost nation and bring them, that nation is Israel, and to bring them in faith to their own Messiah. Will these simple fishermen commit to being trained to become fishers of men by following Jesus? Mark continues in chapter 1, verse 18. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Absolutely. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. John's the one who's writing this gospel, or will be writing the gospel that we're going to be reading in a moment. Who also were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now, friends, Jesus was not calling them to believe, for that was already past. Furthermore, he was not calling them to be to fish, for that's still future. Fish for men or women, that's still future. What he was simply asking them is to follow. That's all he was asking Follow me. Draw close to me. Sit under my teaching. Learn from me. Live in my presence. Share life with me. Be transformed by me and what I say. And then go forth and become and serve as fishers of men. Friends, this is one of the most important distinctions to make in the Bible. I know that sometimes we we wonder about theology, but it's important to sometimes get it straight. And there is a very definite distinction that we need to make in our heads about this matter. On the one hand, in the Bible, there is a call to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior and giver of eternal life to those who believe in Him. And this call is a call to all people in all places, in all ages. 
On the other hand, there is a call, another call, to follow Jesus Christ. To become His disciples, His students, seeking to learn from Him. And therefore to be transformed into the effective and faithful servants He wants all believers to be. And this is a call to believers only. We need to get that clear. There is a call to the world to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life that He gives freely. Then there is a call to follow Him that is to all believers that we might become all that He wants us to be on this earth, in this life. Jesus wants us as believers to follow Him. But suppose we refuse. Or suppose we say yes and then after a short time say no. What happens? Well, let's look at what happened to these disciples. Jesus wanted those who first believed in Him, these, those who would become known as His disciples, to now follow Him. They had believed, but He was challenging them to follow Him. And if they did, He would make them into fishers of men. But what if they refused? Or suppose they start out, as is clearly the case, but then they turn away. Or more likely, suppose they start out, but then drop out. There were numbers of disciples that did that, by the way. You can read John 6 and other, other portions of Scripture. And there were plenty of disciples that were following Jesus that dropped out. Suppose these disciples make a commitment to follow Jesus, but then renege on their commitment. What happens then? Is it over for them? Is Jesus through with such fickle people? Is it shame on them? Verse 18 of Mark 1. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Verse 20. And immediately he called them and they left their father and went after him. And they went into Capernaum, their hometown and the base of the fishing operations, that, that's where it was sort of headquartered. Now, Capernaum, that famous village by the Sea of Galilee, his new disciples listened as he taught in the synagogues. They saw him heal a man who was possessed of a demon. They watched him take hold of Peter's mother-in-law's hand, who was terribly sick and afflicted, and lift her, lift her up and bring her forth healed of her disease and affliction. They felt the multitudes crowding around them and around Jesus as He taught them and as He healed them. But then it was time for Jesus to move on to the next town, the next region, to preach in other synagogues in Israel, to fish and catch people in other places. But the disciples were not ready to leave their homes and go with Jesus. So they turned away and went back to their fishing nets and their boats. They went back to their, their homes and to earning a living and to enjoying a way of life they'd become accustomed to and had known since they were young boys. Is it over now for these disciples as far as Jesus is concerned? Will they ever again be worthy of being called as disciples? 
Is Jesus through with them? Through with making them into fishers of men? Is Jesus running by the precept? First time, shame on them. Second time, shame on me. I will never again trust these disciples. Look with me now at another passage. It's found in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we read verses 1 to 10. And so it was as the multitude pressed against him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's another title for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from there and were washing their nets. Who were the fishermen? Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Oh, these are the boats and the the fishermen are the, the group that had left him before. And he asked Simon to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Simon's boat. And he's teaching, he's using it as a pulpit, as a platform, to teach the multitudes from the shore. But when he stopped speaking, verse 4, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night long and caught nothing. You see, Simon was clearly back into the fishing business. He wasn't fishing for people, he was fishing for fish. And he hadn't done so well that night. Nevertheless, he says that your word, Lord, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and the net was breaking for seven. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, John and James. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the feet of Jesus saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O God, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, You rotten guys, you bailed on me. You shouldn't have done that. First time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. I won't be asking you again. That's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. That must have been precious words to Simon. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Sound familiar? Sounds much like what we read back in Mark 1. In fact, it sounds so familiar that most commentators... Regard these two episodes as the same event. And that really fries me because in spite of the fact that there's all these different details that don't line up, and furthermore, it would mean that Luke inserted the event at the wrong place if it's the same one that Mark was talking about. And Luke is a stickler. He's a historian and a stickler for details. And you ask yourself, why do they do that? What is the problem here? Why do these commentators regard these episodes as the same? It's obvious they aren't. The details don't even match. There's similarities, but they aren't the same. Because Jesus, in their opinion, you can read it, in their opinion, would not have called his disciples to be fishers of men on two different occasions. That's the only reason they have. That Jesus would not have called his disciples to be fishers of men on two separate occasions. 
But that is precisely the point. Precisely the point. He did call them twice. You see, these four fishermen had decided that it was time to get back to fishing and earning a living. It had been exciting following Jesus. And, but who was going to bring home the bread? Does that sound familiar? And it was just such an attitude about who was going to bring home the bread, which prompted Jesus to order them to launch out to the deep because he was going to show them who was going to bring home the bread. And it was Jesus. He was going to fill their nets full of fish. And miraculously, the nets were even breaking under the stress of all the fish. Who would bring home the bread? Jesus would. And the one who got the point immediately was undoubtedly the one who got the others charged up to go back to fishing to begin with. Simon Peter, who fell down at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, for I am a wicked man. But Jesus had no intention of departing from Peter. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and the partners of Simon. They were all astonished. And then Jesus says, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. And they knew exactly what he meant, because before he talked about making them fishers of men. Jesus never gave up on them. He never said, first time, shame on them. Second time, shame on me. He kept after them. Although his words were a little different, they got the message. Read on in, verse, in Luke chapter 5 to verse 11. After Jesus said, do not be afraid, for now you will catch men. We read, so, then, so when he had brought the boats to land, they had brought the boats to land, they forsook all. They forsook all and followed him. Before they had left, we were told, their fishing nets, their boat, and their father, and hired servants in one of the boats. Now this time, we're told that they leave it all. They left their homes, their town, their family, their wife, their friends. It was a com clean, complete break from a way of life they had loved. Obviously, they weren't deserting their family. But they were breaking from a way of life that they had come to love and cherish as young boys, since they were young boys. But they left it all and followed him. A short time later, we read that, that what Jesus had promised about making them fishers of men began to be fulfilled in their experience. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now they were fishers of men, trained and equipped and ready to capture people for Messiah's kingdom. Certainly, these disciples had learned their lesson. Never would they again forsake their calling to follow Jesus. Never again would they think they were going back into the fishing business. Never would they long for that old way of life. Just think of what the Lord would do now if they did. Oh. Now they left it all. They'd really made a clean break. And to think that they would ever go back, that's impossible. Absolutely impossible. 
Strong Christians don't do that. Disciples of Jesus? They wouldn't do that. That's for people like you and me. We're weak. They're tough. They would never go back and try to earn a living by fishing again. Why, there'd be no mercy for such failures, such commitment breakers. I invite you now to turn to John 21. As we bring to a conclusion our journey through the Gospel of John. I'll have a few comments to make next Sunday. And the message next Sunday uh, will be a short one. And I'm planning a time for you to ask some questions next week. And I'll try to answer what questions you have. I'm hoping the message will be about 10 minutes in length. And then we'll have about 20, 25 minutes for questions. And then we'll be observing the Lord's Supper next week. But right now, I want you to travel with me or journey with me through John 21. It's the last chapter. And the first thing we read as we come to that chapter is these words, after these things. And that tells you everything. Think about that word for just a minute, or that phrase. Before you go any further, think about that phrase, after these things. What do these things refer to? The last week in Jerusalem leading up to chapter 21 had been a period of trial and confusion beyond description in the lives of these humble, humble fishermen. These were blue-collar workers, friends. They had no big education. They had no credentials. They were just simple people. And they had gone through what they had gone through over the last week. They were called to be his disciples. In the space of just a few days, they had received more teaching than their immature state could handle. They, they couldn't even begin to get a hold of it. Their hopes of an outward political kingdom over which Israel would rule had been dashed to pieces, at least as far as the present is concerned. One of their own number had betrayed Jesus. All of them forsook him in his hour of his sufferings and death on the cross and undoubtedly felt tremendous guilt and shame. And no one more so than Peter. In a matter of a few hours, they had been reduced from a position of respect as disciples of a popular teacher to a hunted partisan of a discredited imposter. Then I add to all of this the resurrection appearances of Jesus who had been making startling appearances with unmistakable proofs that he was indeed alive from the dead. And they had witnessed it themselves, but they didn't know what to make of it. And at one of those appearances, the second one, or the first one, Jesus personally said that he was sending them forth with a mandate to represent him in the world. He breathed into them the Holy Spirit just as God breathed into Adam a human spirit. Jesus was breathing into His disciples, you might say, the preliminary provision of the Holy Spirit who would remain with them and unite them and enable them during the next 50 days before the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit would be visible, who would visibly fill them at that time in an outward way. This was more of, a, of an inward possession. And lastly, he gave them authority to establish the requirements whereby people could be personally forgiven and so enjoy fellowship with a true God who rules over all things. And you're wondering, well, what's that all about? We'll look at that a little next week. 
But nevertheless, it was an awesome challenge. Uh, you know, to think that I'm going to be setting down the rules here? What's going on? And then after this powerful commissioning of his disciples, Jesus disappears again. And there they are in the room. Where do we go now? What do we do? Now, talking about overwhelming troubles and problems and fears, here they sat in Jerusalem following all these things. And you know what they were? They were thinking about how they were going to go out into the streets and reach Jerusalem for Jesus. This was going to be campaign A.D. 33. Not try, not nice try, but not really. You know what they were thinking? Let's get out of Dodge while the going is good. And so they left Jerusalem and they went back to the region of Galilee. That's hometown region. Back to Capernaum, about 30 miles. And there they were standing around together thinking about what they were going to do. And we pick up the story in John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's, again, another term for the Sea of Galilee. And that's sort of the heading. That's what this whole chapter is about. Now, in this way, he did it. He showed himself. Verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other disciples that aren't named, were together. It was so nice to be back in Galilee. The familiar sights, put yourself in their position. They're sitting there perhaps close to the seashore. They see the boats. There's the wet nets that are hanging up to dry that have the smell of fish on them. And they like the smell of fish. And there was the sense that we're home. And of course, there was the pressing need for food and to earn a living. I mean, somebody's got to pay the bills. So, what do you think these solid Bible-believing preachers and disciples of Jesus are going to do? Well, Peter has no problem deciding what to do. We read on. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. How eloquently put. What follower of Christ hasn't thought to himself, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go permanently fishing. Bail out of this mess. And that's what he had in mind. Then said, Peter was not alone. Then they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night caught nothing. It caught absolutely zip. How are you going to eat zip? It's interesting they caught nothing. I mean, most, most fishermen, when they go out, they get something. They didn't even get a minnow. These backslidden followers... Covenant breakers, commitment breakers, following one another in retreat from what they knew Jesus had called them and told them to do, had appointed them to do, had commissioned them to do. What would Jesus think? What would he say? What would he do? Third time, shame, shame, shame on me. No. Verse 4. But when the morning had now come, dawn was breaking. It wasn't perfectly clear yet. But dawn was breaking, and the lone shadow of a figure appeared on the shore. It says, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, speaking, this is a term of endearment, 
based on a very personal relationship. Children, you haven't found any food yet, have you? That's the literal way it should be translated. It's expecting a negative answer. You haven't found any food yet, have you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we haven't. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, perhaps the stranger saw a school of fish or something, but they thought, oh, what the heck, we might as well try it. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, that's John, that's the way he describes himself. It is the Lord. Now, when Peter, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he puts on his, he puts on his outer garment and jumps in the water, plunges into the sea and either walks or swims to shore. We're not told. Don't know how deep it was. But the other disciples came in a little boat, about 26 feet long, would be what the archaeologists have uncovered. So they were not far from land. It says they were about 200 cubits, which is 100 yards. And they were dragging the net behind them. And it was full of fish. Verse 9. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. The fish were already on the fire, and the bread was, was cooking as well, toasting as well. They caught nothing all night long, but Jesus provides. That's something we can all take a lesson in here. Not only an extraordinary catch, not only did he help them to get an extraordinary catch that they were looking for that would help feed their families and so forth, but he provided for them the touches, the, the finer touches, the ambiance, the, the whole thing, a fire that's warm after being out all night long in a, in a shivering evening fishing, coming in and then smelling the fish, which they liked, and the bread. You could imagine what they thought. And who provided it? Jesus provided it. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you could just caught. And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. That's the point. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Come and eat breakfast. I provided it, everything for you. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? You know, the resurrection body, there's a little touch here that might be sort of not part of the main point of the message, but a little thing you can think about. People say, what am I going to look like when I get to heaven? We're going to look like ourselves, but there's going to be one distinction. We're not going to have any age. Look, I can't tell you what that looks like. Everybody I'm looking out at has a look of age to them. Whether you're a little child or whether you're an old goat like me, we all have an age identity. And you see, Jesus was appearing before them, and they couldn't quite put it together. It looked like Jesus, but he didn't look like he had any age. We read on, verse 13. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish, just like he was serving the Lord's Supper. He passes it out to them because he's the provider. They weren't the provider. They couldn't even, fishermen couldn't catch anything for a whole evening. Now this is now, it says in verse 14, this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, 
And he, when he called him that, it was like saying, you haven't lived, lived up to the name I gave you, which is Peter, meaning rock. Simon, you're in the process of living up to it, but I'm still calling you Simon. Your natural name. Son of Jonah, do you love me unconditionally more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you as a friend loves a friend. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, I want to just, I've obviously added the explanations about the two words of love. The two words of love here, and we're going to get to those in just a moment. But first, notice what he says. Do you love me unconditionally more than these? What is this, the these referred to? The nets, the boats, and the way of life? Does it refer to the other disciples? I think it refers to this. These, back when Peter was with the Lord earlier the night before he was crucified, he boasted, he made this big boast that even though the other disciples would stumble and forsake him. Peter says, I'll never forsake you. I will even die for you. And you know what that implies? I love you more than they love you. And so what I'm thinking, Peter, what Jesus was driving at here is, you said you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me unconditionally more than these? I imagine that penetrated his heart. And Peter remembered what he'd said, what he did, and he responded in the best way he knew how. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the word he uses for love here is the love a friend has for a friend. The two words are agape and phileo. You've heard us refer to those before. Jesus says, do you agape me? Love me in the agape sense, which speaks of, of a love that is willed. It's unconditional. It's something you, you are committed to doing regardless. It's the, the man who takes care of a wife for ten years, who is invalid and sick because he's committed to her. That's agape love. Phileo love. That was the love the man had when he married his wife. She was attractive and, re and responsive, and there was an emotional attachment. But eventually in life, that love is superseded by a greater love. Peter was mindful of that. And he knew that he dropped the ball, that he really didn't love Jesus unconditionally. That circumstances could certainly make a difference, and that's the, the difference with phileo love. Phileo love is a love that is more natural. It's a love between friends, but it is not a love that is above circumstances that can go sour. Peter, broken over his failure to love Christ as he promised, is only now able to promise the love of a friend. You know, Lord, I love you as a friend loves a friend. I'm emotionally attached to you. I, I'm attracted to you, Lord. But as we both know, circumstances can hinder that love. Jesus does not rebuke him. Instead, he treats him as a follower, as a disciple, and he gives him an order. He says, feed my lambs. The, lamb, the word for lambs here means my young ones. The young lambs, the young sheep that are new, they're, they're likely to wander off. You've got to constantly keep your eye upon them as a shepherd, I understand. And you've got to always be tending after them. And they need food, and they'll walk wherever they can to find it right into the jaws of a wolf. 
the fragile, the immature in the faith, Jesus says, feed them, Peter. They need to be fed. Jesus was always keeping the role of teacher and communicator before his disciples because what they taught and the thoughtless things they would say could hinder, especially Peter, could hinder the faith of a young believer. And so he's emphasizing with Peter the need to feed the lambs, the ones that would be prone to wander off. But he doesn't start there, stop there, because in that culture, if you want to emphasize something and you want to drive home the, the officiality of, 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 the, of what you're trying to say, that it's official, that it has significance, a, a weightiness, you emphasize it three times. And so Peter continues, or Christ continues, he says, uh, 16, and he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter said to him, or Simon said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you as a friend loves a friend. And he said, tend my sheep. He didn't rebuke him again. But now he's challenged him to, to tend, to care as a shepherd cares for sheep, to care for his sheep. Remember back in John 10, he says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Care for the sheep of Israel that will believe in me, but also remember there are going to be other people that will be joining this fold. Care for them as well. Care for them as well. And then we come to verse 17. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, and Jesus uses Peter's words, do you love me as a friend loves a friend? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me as a friend loves a friend? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you as a friend loves a friend. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Back to the fundamental ministry of one who is a shepherd to make sure that the, feed, the sheep are fed. That is absolutely critical. Now this third time, Jesus accommodates Peter's humble use of the word phileo for love. Again, it speaks of a love that is born out of attraction, emotional attachment to Jesus. Peter was just so grieved over his own failure that he just couldn't bring himself to use the word agape love. And he was no longer sure of himself. Isn't that a good place to be? Peter had lost confidence in Peter, but he knew Lord. The Lord knew all things, and the Lord did know all things. He was the all-knowing one, and he was sure. The Lord Jesus was sure that Peter was going to love him in the agape sense of the word, that it wasn't going to be just a phileo love. It would be a, a love of commitment even to the end of his life. And so we read in verse 18, the Lord Jesus goes on and says, Peter, there's more to this. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, John adds, signifying by what death he would glorify God. It's known that Peter was crucified. Tradition has it he was crucified upside down. But that's what Jesus is predicting. Peter was not a lost cause. He would not shame his Lord. He would prevail. But he would need to keep one before him, one very important imperative. And it's found in the last part of verse 19. And when he had spoken this, Jesus said to Peter, Follow me. 
follow me, as one commentator put it, and I like this. He says, to commit a fold of Jewish and Gentile believers to one who would deny Jesus betokens forgiveness, cleansing, and complete confidence in a restored leader. An erring disciple is not cast away, but reinstated. Follow me, Peter. And yet, how easily Peter, even at that moment, even at that moment, could lose sight of the imperative. Because we read in verse 20, Then Peter, turning around, evidently they'd gotten up and walked away at that point. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. That's John. Who also had leaned on the breast of Jesus at supper, saying, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Again, he's identifying himself as John. In verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? You say, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified as you are, were. What about this man? Is he going to be crucified as well? And Jesus said to him, If I will that he be with me or remain till I come, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. You follow me. If you or I were to forsake our ministry, if we were to give up striving to be all that our Lord had called us to be, what do you think He would say to us? Okay, Rutherford, do you want cancer, poverty and disgrace, or a motorcycle accident with everyone standing around you with a sign saying, I told you so? You know what He would say to me? Arch, follow me. If I got to comparing myself with some other Christian brother or sister or leader with similar responsibilities, he keeps after us. He keeps on saying to us, follow me, follow me. Follow me. Learn from me. Keep close to me. Study me. Keep my words. Abide in my love. Obey me. Follow me. Follow me. And if we get to comparing ourselves with others, he says, you follow me. I was impressed with the story of Donna Rice. Some of you may remember her in 1987. She was the young woman that was involved in a scandal with then-presidential hopeful Gary Hart. And she'd accompanied Hart, who was a married man, on a pleasure cruise on his yacht going to the Bahamas. And on the back of the yacht, it had monkey business. And, of course, the news press just had a heyday with that, filming that and blowing that candidate right out of the water, literally. But at the time, it was a tremendous blow to Donna Rice. She was a backslidden Christian, according to uh, today's Christian woman, and as a freshman in high school, she had received Christ as at a Cliff Barrows uh, crusade. And throughout her high school life, she had spent time involved in church choir, church youth group, church mission trips, inviting friends to church. She was really into it. But then when she went to college, as sometimes happens, she began to compromise and compromise and compromise to the point that she got a far away from the Lord. Then the Gary Hart scandal broke out. And suddenly, her picture was on the front page of newspapers and magazines across the country. Her life fell apart. She resigned her job. She was hounded by the press. She was offered millions of dollars to tell her story. 
As she wrestled with what to do, her mother and grandmother said to her something that she would never forget. Before you make any decision, get your life straight with God. But it wasn't obvious to her at that moment, she says. I was stunned because I hadn't yet realized I could put the entire mess in his hands. Then Rice's mother gave her a cassette tape from a former friend from youth group. And the tape said, Donna, I want, I imagine you're in a lot of pain right now. I just want you to know that God loves you and I love you. Rice recalls when she began to share songs we used to sing together, I collapsed on the floor in my apartment and sobbed. I knew I and no one else was responsible for my choices and I cried out, God, it took falling on my rear in front of the whole world to get my attention. Help me to live my life your way. God answered my plea by flooding me with his presence and forgiveness and by surrounding me with Christian fellowship. He is Lord of the second chance, friends, and the third chance, and the fourth chance, and the fifth chance, and the twentieth chance. We don't get that. And that brings me to the second part of this application. And that is, Jesus is our model. And friends, if He can forgive and restore, and restore, and restore people over and over and over again, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? I've wrestled with this in my life. I've got that pattern where somebody breaks their word, drops the ball, doesn't keep a commitment, check them off, they're losers. God says, Arch, if you knew how many times I checked you off, you wouldn't believe it. Cut people slack. Cut people slack. And encourage them to follow Jesus. Encourage them to follow Jesus. And it's never, never too late to get back on track. Never. As long as we're alive in this world, we can come back and get back following Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, first time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. Neither should we say it, friends. That saying should not be a part of our vocabulary. James says this, So speak and so do to one another, we might add, as those will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our gracious God and Father, we pray you would speak to our hearts this morning, encourage us as we sing a beautiful hymn as a refrain. Oh Lord, prone to wonder, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Help us to know that we can come back. And that Lord, you're more than ready to receive us. And to enable us to begin once again following our Savior and becoming all that he wants us to become. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And as Arch has read from Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing, can you open up your hymnals to hymn number 11? Let's stand, please. It's nice to know that we're going to be... We've been restored today, even today, for those of us who need restoration. And Arsh was saying he's a God of 20, 30, 40, 50 chances, and that's fantastic.
God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of us as we go forth in your presence, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good day and God bless you. Thank you.